Even though we might be seeing the back end of the global COVID-19 pandemic, many of us are still stuck at home waiting through endless meetings over Zoom and other teleconferencing platforms. With the hopes of creating a little community spirit and to encourage folks out there to step away from their screens and maybe crack open a book instead, I start a little group called the Joy Trip Reading Project. Each month, we're taking a deep dive into the stories of primarily black authors whose work centers around nature and the identity many of us share in common as people who love the great outdoors. In February for Black History Month, the title we read was Glory Land by National Park Ranger Shelton Johnson. This novel is the story of a black American sergeant in the United States Army at the turn of the last century. As a member of the Buffalo Soldiers, the principal character, Elijah Yancey, reveals to us the life and times of the men who were among the world's original protectors of public land at the national parks of Yosemite and Sequoia. Not enough people know that in 1903, the first superintendent of Sequoia was a black American U.S. Cavalry officer by the name of Charles Young. Despite the national climate of Jim Crow segregation, these men were among the first national park rangers. During a time when race relations in this country were at their most abysmal, the Buffalo Soldiers fight to preserve the best idea America ever had. Unfortunately, because of some technical difficulties connecting with Ranger Johnson over Zoom, I literally had to hold my cell phone up to my computer microphone to conduct this interview. Sorry in advance for the marginal sound quality, but under the circumstances, really, what can you do? I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joycher Project. It was 1984, the summer of 84. Tell me the, the story of, of what it was like when you first got off the bus at Yellowstone. Well, when I first got off the bus in Yellowstone, I was essentially in a state of, of not so much shock, but uh, it, it had essentially rekindled a memory that I had when I was five years old. When I was living in Germany, my, my father was stationed in the military, and there was a family trip to Berchtesgaden, uh, to the Bavarian Alps. And uh, the last time I had been in such an environment as what surrounded me when I was in Yellowstone, that last time was when I was five years old and living with my parents in Germany. And that memory came rushing back as I stepped off that bus. No, really more as I planted my feet on the ground off the bus itself. I just felt uh, this rekindling of that moment with my mom and my dad and my brother surrounding, surrounded completely by the Bavarian Alps. I was immersed in it in the mountains again. And, it, and the last time that it happened was when I was a child in Germany. And um, through the course of your, your time in Yellowstone, what was it that grounded you in the message and the experience being in the outdoors, especially in a place like, like Yellowstone? Well, the thing is, it, it was just the environment itself. I, I really had never been in a space, an environment that uh, took in, it took over all the senses. It was what you could see, it was what you heard, it was what you could feel around you. Uh, it was not, I call it Yellowstone National Park is a misnomer to a great degree because it's an environment that literally captivates every sense and every sensibility. 
I was it and it was it was me and, and it was very profound to to, to see myself uh, ex- externalized into the world around me, which certainly didn't happen when I was growing up in Detroit. As we we are having this general conversation about the experience in the national parks, how long did it take you to, to you know finally decide that this was something that you wanted to do as a long term career? Well, you know, it, it probably took a, maybe a year, or a couple of years or so, but I already knew that something absolutely. Uh, transformative had happened just when I stepped off that bus and had and then continued to, you know, experience Yellowstone. It was it was essentially a gradual reawakening to the world. I mean, it's you know you hear that phrase within you know Christian faith of being born again, but to a great degree that's essentially what happened to me. I I was born in Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, on July twenty fifth, nineteen fifty eight, and when I stepped off that bus in Yellowstone years later. It, it, the same sort of thing was happening. It, it just uh, it connected me instantly to that mountaintop high in the Bavarian Alps. And I realized that that was really the, the, the place of my, nati- my nativity. That was the place of my origin. Uh, that it was in Germany, but that it was, that it was nature, that it was wild nature. And uh, it was magnetic. And I, I've never forgotten that moment, either of those two moments. And they both had that confluence in Montana. And I have to say, James said it's a it's an irony for an inner city kid from Detroit to feel a homecoming when they arrive in in Montana in Wyoming. And when did you make it to Yosemite? Well, after serving a year and a half in D.C., I, I, I took a position in Great Basin National Park, which at that time was the newest national park. I spent a great deal of time underground conducting tours of Lehman Cave, a beautiful limestone cavern, and uh, it was a it was a great experience being there. I had never been in a park where I would say that the two most principal things about it that, that, stick, that stick in my memory were the night skies, which were some of the darkest night skies I've ever experienced, and then the silence. I never thought before that experience in Great Basin that silence could be a sound, but silence is something that's audible, not inaudible. It is audible. It is a pressure that's in the mind and in the spirit, and I had never been in, in an environment that was so expansive visually and so expansive orally as well. Um, and so then from Great Basin, I ended up uh, you know, coming, coming to Yosemite National Park and going into the Yosemite. And then the same thing happened in reverse with its, its effect and its power on me. How long was it before you discovered that amazing photograph of African-American men on horseback in Yosemite Valley that you came to discover were the Buffalo Soldiers? Well, you know, the thing is, I didn't really discover that photograph. The photograph discovered me. I mean, you know, when you look at a photograph, you see, obviously, that it has the uh, finite boundaries, and you, you're looking at the image that's within. But when I saw the photograph, there were no finite boundaries. It was the boundaries were infinite. It was more like I was peering through a window. And when I, as I peered through that window, uh, I, could, I could see my father. I, I, I could see my brother. I could see uh, two men who a part of my family who served in the military. My dad served in Berlin right after World War II and then in the infantry in Korea and then in the Air Force in Vietnam. My brother served in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so I come from a family of veterans and I actually uh, didn't see strangers when I looked into that photograph and saw the eyes of those soldiers staring back at me. I saw the eyes of family members. I saw men who could have been uh, a sibling, who could have been a parent. And it was that deep a connection. And I hadn't even realized until I looked at that image for the very first time 
I hadn't even realized that I basically felt alone uh, because of my culture, because of my ethnicity, the fact that there was only one other uh, or a couple other African-Americans, actually just one other African-American working for the Park Service at that time in Yosemite. And, uh, and it just really struck me that, that I had a family that I didn't even know. And, and that family lived 100 years ago you know, in the same place that I, that I occupy today. How long was it before you then decided that you wanted to tell stories about the Buffalo Soldiers and to, to discover a little bit more about their history? What, what was it that, that got you on the path to become the Buffalo Soldiers storyteller? That photograph. It took about a second. <laughs> all, I, all I knew at that point was I had never really heard that story. There's a, a ranger who's African-American who preceded me in this work by the name of Althea Roberson, which I think is yeah. a telling name, Althea, like it's an Althea Gibson. And so she was a pioneer in that. And then prior to Althea's great work in the park uh, with African-American history in general, there was an African-American ranger by the name of Kenneth Noel, who also uh, wore the cavalry uniform and told the story from the inside out, which is the best way of looking at history. It's, it's an internal view that's expressed outward as opposed to an external view that's compressed inward. And so when you put that uniform on, you, you put yourself at the heart of the story. And that's the best place to be the best space to occupy right before you begin to tell a tale. And, uh, and I felt that that was the easiest way for me to connect with the past was to be inside the story, peering out as if the story itself was a lens or a window through which I could see the, their world. And so it was, it was really to answer your question, it was instantaneous. I just knew I needed to know, I needed to know who these men were. I needed to know where they were from. I needed to know everything about them because essentially, again, when I saw them, I saw family. And when you, when you see family all around you, you feel that sense of kinship and you feel that sense of being homeward bound. And that's exactly the transport that I experienced when I peered into that photograph, into the eyes of these dead soldiers who were peering back into mine. Wow. I got to tell you that what makes this whole thing remarkable is that at the time, I mean, you were one of um, a handful of African-American park rangers on duty anywhere in the country. And there you weren't the only one, but there were still many. And I know that, that you're, you're personally familiar with the history and legacy of Robert Stanton, who was the first African-American superintendent of the Frederick Douglass House, but he was by extension, the first superintendent of a national park since the Buffalo Soldier era, almost 60 years later. You know, what does it mean to be able to be a person of color, especially in the, the role of a park ranger, coming into a place like Yosemite or Yellowstone or Grand Canyon in a position of authority in protecting and preserving the well and scenic places that we all know and love? Well, it feels like a responsibility, but it also feels like a legacy. So for example, I clearly remember the day I got a message from, from Bob Stanton and Director Stanton contacted me and uh, we had met earlier in Yosemite. And when we met, it was right outside the superintendent's office and I was mounted and Bob saw me on that horse. And he said, I guess he saw how comfortable I was on that horse, you know? And uh, a few months later, he contacted me and he said, uh, Sheldon, how would you like to ride in the Rose Parade in my place? And I said, uh, uh, sure. And that's how I ended up riding in the Rose Parade uh, years, decade, over a decade ago. I was riding in the place of the first African-American director of the National Park Service. I was writing on behalf of, of Bob Stanton, and I thought that was one of the greatest honors of my career to write in his place. I rode with the, the current, at that time, chief of the Forest Service and a woman who was also the head of a BLM in Arizona. 
And uh, we were right there in the Rose Parade, the Rose Parade side by side. But I never forgot the fact that I was writing uh, in, in the place of for Bob. And when I thought and think of Bob, I, I think of him in a similar kind of pioneering role that Charles Young played uh, in our national parks back in 1903. So I felt like that I was literally embodying the past, the present, and the future at the same time. Through the course of your career, you've been telling the story of the Buffalo Soldiers in period costume and dress. And I got to tell you, that is what kind of brought me into the story of the Buffalo Soldiers. In fact, um, you and I met shortly after the release of the, actually before the release of the film, The National Parks, America's Best Idea by Ken Burns. And I know that many of the people on this call are familiar with that film. What is it, I mean, how did you go about crafting the narrative of the Buffalo Soldiers? Tell us a little bit about the story of what it is to be an African-American mounted soldier in Yosemite in 1903. Well, see, but that's the thing, James. The, the, the story was already a part of me. I mean, that's, that was that sense of recognition that I felt when those soldiers were staring at me from the photograph. And as I said, it was a window and I was staring back at them because I didn't need to be informed about their history because I instantaneously knew their story because it was the story of my family. It was my dad's story, born in Spartanburg, South Carolina in 1929, the son of sharecroppers and the grandson or great-grandson of folks who had been enslaved, uh, forced to do work that he didn't really want to do. And he joined the military for a sense of dignity, a sense of responsibility, and a sense that uh, that he could serve his country and hope that his country would serve him back in return. And so I've already, I had already been living that Buffalo Soldier narrative. It was already in my blood. It was already in my mind. It was already in my spirit. And so all that was happening when I first put on that cavalry uniform, I was uh, I was inhabiting a story that was already in my bones. It wasn't so much that I was living the story. The story was living through me. <laughs> so it was really a completely different thing. I, it's like you, you, you think of someone being possessed, but the possession was not anything evil. It was innately good and it was innately familial. It was my it was my own the spirit of my own father, the spirit of my brother. Uh, they were they were there with me. And so that's all that kind of commingled. So when I looked at that photograph, I didn't see strangers. I didn't see a separation of 100 years between the living and the dead. I saw my own family looking back at me. And it was that deep of a connection. So everything else just fell into place. I mean, I knew I had to learn how to ride a horse. Luckily for me, somebody has a horse patrol school. I don't call it learning how to ride a horse. I call it learning how not to be killed by a horse. And so far, so good. But I survived that uh, intensive course. And I knew that I, um, that was just the beginning. That was just the beginning of, of, of learning and becoming something that I didn't even know existed prior to my arrival in, in, in Yosemite. If you're just joining us, I wanted to say that I'm James Mills, and we're talking to Yosemite National Park Ranger Shelton Johnson. And if you're wondering why you can't see us, I'm going to apologize. We're having some difficulty getting Shelton's connection to join, but he's actually on the phone with me and I'm playing his voice <laughs> through my phone, through my microphone, through my computer to you. If you have questions, if there's anything that you'd like to know specifically about uh, Shelton's career, or more importantly, if you had a chance to read the book that is part of the Joy Trip Reading Project 
book club through Goodreads called Gloryland. I'll be very interested to hear your questions and Shelton, if you're willing to answer them. Um, I'd like to um, engage our audience in a bit of conversation. And I got to tell you, I re I'm really pleased that we've actually managed to um, retain an audience of over 120 listeners across the country. So everyone, thank you so much for your kindness and patience um, as we're getting through our, our technical difficulties. But I think more, you know, more than anything else, you know, being able to share the story of the Buffalo Soldiers. And I can tell you just from my own personal standpoint, I was radicalized when I heard for the first time, well past the age of 40, that I had history, heritage, and legacy of, as a person of color, being in the national parks 100 years ago. At the very beginning of the creation of the national park system, there were people there who looked like me. I didn't know that. You know, I grew up in California. I was born and raised in um, Los Angeles, went to school at Berkeley, worked in Yosemite as a as a rock climbing instructor and a back, backpacking guide, but it took Ken Burns to tell me the story of the Buffalo Soldiers. And you tell it so beautifully. In fact, there's a section in the book that is especially compelling. And I'm, I wonder if you would take this moment to share that story with us. Do you have the copy of the book that we were talking about earlier today that you might be able to read for us right now? Yeah, yeah, I have it right here. And, uh, you know, one thing I just want to say before I start reading, just so folks are clear, I, I don't see what's happening right now between you and I and, and the invisible audience out there as being a negative, because to a great degree, what I was experiencing when I was first delving into this history, it, it was a history that was invisible. It was a history that was inaudible. It was a history that was intangible. So we have the grace of at least a, a voice of these, this voicing of myself and the and then what you're hearing at the far end, I can't see the people's expressions on their faces. I can't even see their faces. I can't even see them in general. And that is so much what history is all about. History is something that is often initially remote and you're reaching out into the darkness, waiting for someone to grasp hold of your hand. And all we have is this thin thread of electronics, this thin signal of electromagnetic radiation that's emanating and being received. And that's a tether, that's a lifeline. But for most, most of us, when someone has passed on, when some story has passed on, it's, it's lost forever. So this really, what we're experiencing, is emblematic of the whole idea of telling a story that's been forgotten. Um, because it sometimes just hangs literally from a thread. Yes. <laughs> I, that's incredibly true. And I got to tell you, I'm, 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 a, I'm a radio guy myself. And so to be able to have a conversation like this without visual aids is actually kind of helpful for me too. So I'm glad that you agree. And I'm certainly glad that the audience agrees because um, we've actually got um, a few more people since we first started. So if, it, if again, you can uh, share with us uh, the passage um, in the book that we had talked about. And uh, again, people in the audience, I can see your um, responses in the chat. So I'd be more than happy to respond to your questions. So please go ahead and uh, share them in the chat. And Shelton, without any further ado, go ahead and, and share the passage that we discussed. Okay. The, the title of this chapter is Cocked Pistol, and it's from my novel Gloryland, which is a story, a memoir of an African-American or Black Indian who became a soldier, an African-American soldier or Black Indian soldier in the 9th Regiment of Cavalry, a Buffalo soldier. Something was eating away at Private First Class Bledsoe. Something you couldn't see, but it got so as you could feel a bite in the air whenever he was around. 
all of us got darkness, holes inside where you don't want light to go. But Bledsoe's was beginning to show on the outside. It was in his attitude, in his voice, the way he moved, how he answered when, he, when you called his name. And it was beginning to interfere with his soldiering. It got harder and harder for him to give an order and take one. I guess he'd been taking so much all his life, he just got full up. How much can you take before you start falling apart inside like a house with wood rot or termites? The damage invisible until it all crashes down. I was taught that pain makes calluses, rough, leathery skin spreading over what's tender. But sometimes even that skin can split open and bleed. I still don't really understand what happened to Bledsoe. All I know is that one moment, four of us, my, myself, Bledsoe, McAllister, and Bingham, were standing on the edge of a meadow, swatting at mosquitoes in the country north of the Tuolumne River, a place where there were more rocks than trees with a mild breeze blowing past. And while I was thinking what a beautiful day it was, I was also thinking about how to pull Bledsoe out of the hole he put himself into and where he lay silent and raw. All I'd ask him to do was help dig a latrine for our camp that night because we didn't have enough time to make it to the post. And it was a reasonable thing to ask a private to do. should have been expected after all his years in the Army. It was just an order like a thousand others I'd given. And even McAllister thought it was wrong for Bledsoe to argue about doing his job. But the whole time he was swelling up to bust and we couldn't see it because we were so caught up in being annoyed at him. One minute I was staring up at the sky, hoping for a little rain to cool me off, pushing the conversation to one side of my head the way you sweep a floor clean. The next minute an arm was round my neck and I felt something hard and cold pressed against my right temple. I lost my balance. I couldn't breathe, and my hands went out by themselves, trying to find something to grip, but there was only air. I could see McAllister with his lower jaw drop, and Bingham staring at me like I was Jesus come back. Since I couldn't see Bledsoe, I figured it was his arm round my neck, his stinky breath in my face, and his regulation Colt revolver pressed against my head. He cocked it. The click was loud, louder than the wind in the trees and the meadow, louder than the creek. Even my heart, which was beginning to pound, was quieter than the cocking of that pistol. He didn't say anything. I couldn't get any breath to talk, and McAllister and Bingham were too surprised, I guess. The conversation we'd been having was over. And the next one looked like it would be short. We were way past words anyway. If talk was a country we'd been visiting, we had crossed the border to someplace else. There were only two choices. Either Bledsoe blow my brains out, or he wouldn't. All I heard was breathing, and the wind in the grass, and the whisper in the red firs, the one that comes from nothing and fades to nothing. There were a few birds singing, not a lot, because it was getting close to twilight. A few clouds were passing over, and I could have sworn they slowed down as they passed, as if they were trying to get a better look at what was happening below. Except for not getting much air, I wasn't too bad off. 
In a way, it was just like being back in South Carolina. Every day of my life there, something I could only see part of was squeezing my throat and breathing down my neck. This year was just the feel of an arm round my throat cutting off air. It was a feeling of floating in and out of things. It was the knowledge that a cocked pistol was pressed up against my skull and that my life could end at any time. I was used to this. Bledsoe was just reminding me that this was my life. Days and nights of being out of breath, feeling I had no control of anything around and death always right behind me with a gun to my head and his bony finger on the trigger. Yeah, I'd been here before. And I knew without thinking that if I moved, he'd pull the trigger. If Bingham or McAllister moved, he'd pull the trigger. He had all the power. And that's what all this was about. Back at Fort Robinson, we did drills that taught you to act and not think. Because thinking just clouds the issues at moments like this. And you were better off acting from instinct. So I did nothing. And that was what saved my life. It was a lifetime of doing nothing. The longest 10 or 20 minutes I ever spent. McAllister didn't move. Bingham didn't move. No one and nothing moved except the Sierra Nevada and everything else in it. We must have presented a funny picture. Four colored soldiers standing stock still at the edge of a meadow, surrounded by bare granite hills. Soldiers who weren't talking, only staring at each other. After a bit, I could feel the muscles in Bledsoe's arm twitch and then begin to relax. I didn't know if this meant he was about to let me go or he was just getting tired. Whatever the reason, all of a sudden, I could breathe, and my head started to clear. I still did nothing, but doing nothing was something. Growing up in the South had taught me not to confuse fighting with surviving. Surviving didn't mean backing down or lowering your head like a dog. It meant holding on like an oak in a flood. You put your roots down deep and gripped and let the water come. That's surviving. And it's what I was doing with blood cells. It's what we were all doing. All of us knew about living in a world where we had no power. I'm here on this earth because my family understood that the best way to fight was just to survive. If you were born with a pistol to your head, the only way to fight was to make it to the next second. And that meant knowing what was in the head of the person whose finger was tightening on the trigger. This gave me an advantage with Bledsoe. I knew, and all of us knew, what was in his head because we weren't any different. The same acid gnawing at his gut was in ours too. We were just holding up better right then. Anyway, we all knew how it would turn out if we did nothing. We'd survive. And that's what happened. After a few minutes, Bledsoe got tired of holding that pistol to my head. and He dropped his arm. 
I stepped away from him, turned toward him. He was breathing hard, looking at the ground. And then he, he, he let the pistol drop. It fell to the ground with a dull thud like a stone. He sat down next to it and began to cry. I moved down and picked up the colt and tossed it to McAllister, who caught it and tucked it carefully under his belt. Then I sat down in front of Bledsoe. I didn't touch it. I didn't say anything to him. Just sat there inches away, and he knew I was there. He was crying hard now. McAllister and Bingham sat too on either side of Bledsoe. They were angry and sad because they knew he had just left the army by doing what he'd done. Left the only real kin he had and his life was about to get a hell of a lot worse. The last thing that man needed was more words. So we kept on saying nothing. We helped him get up and to do what we had to put our arms around him. Once he was standing, we, we could have let go, but we didn't. And he didn't seem to mind. We kept holding him up. We should have been angry. Bledsoe could have killed me, but he didn't. He was just mad and he couldn't hold a pistol to the head of everyone who'd hurt him deeply. Make them take notice. We were the only ones in reach. His brothers. His family. We didn't let go of him for a long time. Thank you for that. And I can tell you that, you know, we had a lot of passages to pick from. <laughs> and this is the, the one passage that I think Shelton and I agreed would be a really good place to, to couch this conversation. As Kim Sykes said in the chat, what an important passage to read during our current polarizing times. So profound. And that was precisely the reason why you know, we selected this particular passage, because it does speak to the present in many, many ways. And I think that when we look at where we are right now relative to racially motivated violence, particularly perpetrated towards African-American men, you know, Shelton, I'd, I'd like for you to, you know, to tell us in your own words, I mean, what is it about this passage that is so resonant to where we are right now? because nothing really has changed. I mean, everything has changed, but you know that phrase, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, when I was reading it, you know, the one phrase that's not in that passage that could have easily been part of it is the phrase, I can't breathe. You know, so I was getting emotional reading this because the last time I read that passage from, from my book was before Black Lives Matter. The last time I read that was before what has happened to so many African-American men in, a, in such a short period of time. But reading that now, I, I, you know, just it, it, it took me out of that story that was said in the past and it took me right to the present moment, right to here and now. And I realized uh, that a lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. And uh, it was painful. But at the same time, there's so much in that story about companionship and friendship taking care of each other, taking care of your family. That's one thing I learned from my father, that when you become a soldier, you get, a next, you get another family. You, you get men and or women that are side by side with you and uh, that would take a bullet meant for you. And, they're, and you're all trying to keep each other from getting killed. You know, that becomes your new family. 
And Troop K, Troop L, who served in Yosemite, they weren't just soldiers at, that were part of Troop K. It was a family called Troop K. And I, I, I definitely learned that from, from my father and learned that from my brother. And I just brought that to bear when I was writing this. But I had no idea as I was writing it that the past would become the present, which would become the future. So I, uh, that's, as I said, that's the first time I've read that. Uh, in a long time, and uh, it's it, the echoing, the voicing of, of that, is, it's like it could have been written yesterday. Well, indeed. And again, folks, if you've got questions, I'm going to see if we can take the 12 minutes that we have remaining in the hour to ask a couple of questions that have come through on the chat screen. And let me see if I can find one that will work. Let's see, well, first of all, just some really great comments. Um, I've been listening to the audio book to love hearing Shelton give audible voice to Elijah Yancey. I'm curious how he prepared himself to speak as Elijah and tell his story out loud once he had written the words. And that's from Brenda, forgive me, Plankins. So Shelton, how did you create the character Elijah Yancey? Um, how is it that you were able to put voice into the mouth of a character that you created? Well, one thing that I, I recognize is that the, the key to acting is to not act. It's to become. And so I, I, I like everyone that's on this, uh, on this call, we all have memories of, of family members that have passed on. I mean, our elders when we were children, you know, grandparents or great grandparents and how they passed on. And, and you can still hear their voices. You know, you just have to think back to those times. And so I grew up in a household where my, my maternal grandparents were black Cherokees from Oklahoma. You know, so for me, slavery was as close as the look in my grandfather's eyes when he got wistful about what it was like to be raised in a, in a, in a Cherokee town called Inola in Indian Territory, Oklahoma. My, my grandmother was from McAllister, which was the largest town in the Choctaw Nation in Indian Territory in Oklahoma. My father's from Spartanburg, South Carolina, and his parents and grand, his grandparents and great-grandparents had been uh, enslaved there, you know. Um, so all those voices I heard as a child through my parents and through my grandparents. And so all I tried to do was be an echo, the echo coming back from the voicings that I heard when, when I was a kid, you know, growing up in Detroit. I'm in this urban environment, but I'm hearing all these stories that were about the South, that were about rural America, that were about what it was like to be uh, African-American before we were called ourselves African-American, when we were Negroes, when we were called, when we were colored people or colored folk. Uh, and I just basically brought that out uh, when I was telling the story. So I had to relive it in order to make it feel alive to everyone else. And I found that since my background's music, everything is all about the voice, finding the right voice. And so I haven't shared this in any other, uh, you know, interview, but uh, Elijah basically is, is a blend of my father and my grandfather. I just put those two together and that became very real to me. And obviously it's it must've become real to people who are reading the book because that's, those are the sort of responses that I've been getting. Well, so we've got a, another uh, question um, from uh, Luana Sponza. And she asks, uh, did Elijah discover what the woman in the calico dress meant by him being lost because he didn't know the real name of the place? This struck me because I felt Elijah knew every corner of Yosemite, but then I had to question, was he lost without the complete history of the ancestral lands? 
So well, what he did wouldn't have, he wouldn't have? I don't know if I understand clearly that question, but he wouldn't have known every aspect of Yosemite, but it would have felt like it because he would have gone everywhere where there was a road to take someone. I mean, that's the whole point of being on patrol in Yosemite's wilderness during that time period. But it, it, Yosemite is vast enough that it takes more than just a summer to really see everything that's there. You know, um, one of my oldest friends here is a, a, a man by the name of Tim Ludington. He was the foreman for trails in Yosemite for many, many decades. And I remember at some point he told me he had just hiked the one section of trail that he had not hiked. And he, he, he so he's literally has by now, he has hiked every single trail fully in Yosemite. So if it took him decades, over a decade to, to hike every trail in Yosemite, even if they were on horseback, it would take quite a bit of time for someone to do the same thing, even with a horse. But really what, what I was more interested in was just conveying that sense of rootedness, that you've been in it long enough that there's not really much of a separation between you and the, and the environment of, that surrounds you. It becomes internalized. And I think that that's the experience that these soldiers would have had, that they, on all those patrols, the, the, the place itself would become part of who they, who they are. I mean, let's face it, all of us breathe when we're alive. That's a sign of life itself. And they're breathing in Yosemite. So they can smell every flower that's there in the meadow. They can smell all the different trees from the ponderosa pines, the incense cedar, to the Douglas fir. They're breathing all of that in. And the light is being breathed in as well. And all of it. So uh, I just wanted to convey that, that sense of saturation of self with spirit and with the land. So um, this next question comes from David Friedman. And he asks, I had a question about the moment that Elijah stepped on the sidewalk. It was clear that this was a sharp turning point for Elijah and his family. In some ways, it reminds me of previous actions in the past from Black and African-American folks like Claudette Colvin and Rosa Parks and the Greensboro sit-ins. What went into brainstorming and implementing that moment in the book? What made you want to make this moment, this action, one of walking? Well, because that's the history of African Americans in the United States. It's all about walking. It's all about movement. It's not about something that's stationary. It's something that's very that's mobile. And when you make that transition from from being a child to being an adult, sometimes that transition can be sudden. Sometimes it can be something that, that's stretched out a bit. And I felt that for uh, this character, who I never thought of as a character, I always think of him as a person. That transition between being an adolescent and being an adult was as simple as, or not so simple as walking where he knew intuitively and had been instructed he should never walk. He just had enough. And I think that's what happens. I think that that's what happened with Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks, plenty of times when she had been asked to give up her seat, she just did it. But that on that particular day, uh, day I remember she just was tired and she just did not want to move. She just had, a, she had enough and she just sat there. So in her case, it was being stationary when people, when the world expected her to be mobile. And in the case of Elijah, it was being mobile when the world expected him to be stationary, to not move onto that sidewalk. And so it just was, I don't think it was something that, that, that he really planned. It was something that somehow had been planned for him in terms of his development. It's like this recognition, I cannot be who I imagine myself to be unless I do this and I do this now. Wow. Yeah, and I think that um, a lot of this... <laughs> It has to do with how we want to move through the world. And one of the things about nature, one of the things about our national parks is that it gives us the ability to be who we are, to be ourselves. 
And frankly, you know, when we go to a place like Yosemite, we do a, a lot of walking. How do you think the Buffalo Soldier story helps to define people's role in the world? I mean, does this narrative allow people to have a certain amount of freedom of expression to know that they're part of a history that might have been denied to them for generations? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, what, what I find inspiring, because that's really the foundation of what you're asking, what I find inspiring about this story is the whole idea of strength. Not, not, not so much physical strength, but that, that you have to have psychological and spiritual strength and stamina. You know, there's, there's, such, is there's, there's no such thing as a marathon for the spirit, a marathon for the mind, a marathon for a sense of self. But I think that, that people of color that lived at that time, and I'm being inclusive of Native Americans, I'm being inclusive of Asian Americans, and any group that basically felt somehow put upon and somehow diminished by the larger culture, you, you just have to just recognize you're not running a, a sprint, that this is a marathon, and, a, and to make it to whatever finish line creator has said before you, you need you have to you have to pace yourself. You have to not expend the energy that you don't need to expend and save it because there'll be a, some other challenge that'll be just down the road. And uh, that's basically what I was feeling when I was trying to create the, what kind of character uh, you know Elijah had was this was this sense of not being passive, being active, not being res, being resistant, but being resistant in a way that a boulder on a mountainside is resisting gravity, you know, it's just staying in one spot, but it looks like that it could fall any moment. You know, you're just, you're, 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 you're holding back, but you're doing it in a way that seems casual about it because you just need to conserve your energy for the, for the efforts ahead that are going to require every ounce of spirit and mind and soul that you may have. Cause, cause essentially there's forces out there in the world that are literally trying to kill you. And that's a very difficult thing to, to imagine, let alone to feel every single day when you wake up, you open your eyes, there's that recognition that there are really forces out there that want you dead. And, and for me, that's what made life so challenging for people of color in general, but for African-Americans in particular around the turn of the last century. And, and let's not be shy about this. Um, I mean, the historian Rayford Logan said that the nadir of the African-American experience was around 1901. I mean, the lowest point for African-Americans in terms of their rung of the social ladder was around 1901. And these African-American soldiers served in the Sierra Nevada in 1899, 1903, and 1904. So it was literally at the lowest point in our history. And people say to me, well, how can it be lower than slavery? That's, isn't that the lowest that they could possibly be? Well, if, it's, if, it's, if you are enslaved, there is no sunrise tomorrow. You have to accustom yourself to this darkness that existed generations before you and, it, and will exist generations after you if you were born around 1700. So you, you can't even entertain the possibility of hope. But when you've been granted supposedly freedom, the 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, and 15th Amendments had all been passed by the time this story takes place. The 13th Amendment ended slavery, but it did not. If you were fleeing the South, heading north, following the drinking gourd, and you stopped in a southern town to just rest because you're tired, you could be picked up for vagrancy and put in a chain gang for the rest of your life. And because you're so tired walking north, following that North Star, if you decided, I need a rest, I'm going to get a, get a room. And even if you had the money to get a room, you were denied a room in a hotel. 
you were denied a meal at a restaurant, even if you were hungry. And the only place that you could sleep safely was out in the forest. But out in the forest means out in the woods. And that's one of the reasons why the woods has such a negative connotation, a negative denotation for so many African-Americans, because that's the construct where violence was perpetrated against them by the KKK, Nathan Bedford Forrest, the white supremacist. No matter what you couch it in, it was an environment of, of hostility. And, and that same environment and the legacy of that environment that gets passed down from generation to generation is one of the main reasons why African-Americans don't visit national parks. Because as, as William Faulkner once said, the past isn't dead. The past isn't dead. It isn't even past. We're still living Jim Crow. It's still there. It's in, it's in the blood. It's in the atmosphere. All the attitudes that exist today are rooted in yesterday. And yesterday is not that long ago. Whenever I, as a child, when I was growing up in Detroit, I looked in the eyes of my grandfather, who was a black Cherokee from Oklahoma. And he, it, it, and, and when I did that, I was looking into the eyes of someone who had looked into the eyes of someone who had been enslaved. Because around 1910, people who had been enslaved were still alive. They were elders, but they were still there. So for me, slavery has always been as close as my grandfather's eyes, my grandmother's eyes, because they saw what which, which should have been invisible, which should have, should have never existed. So it's getting that physical, the physicality tied to the past, not just with a past, something that's remote, but a past that, can, that has blood moving through it, that, that's covered in skin, that has muscles and bone, that, that is, it's still around and it's still creaking and it's still walking through the world. That was Yosemite National Park Ranger Shelton Johnson, author of the novel Glory Land. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please join us at the Joy Trip Reading Project through Goodreads or Facebook. You'll find this and other wonderful titles that celebrate the black experience in the outdoors. We'll be back again with another author conversation. For more information, visit joytripproject.com. This is James Edward Mills. Music courtesy of Artlist, featuring the band Muted, Steve Poloni, and Ty Simon. The Joy Trip Project is made possible thanks to the support of Saris Innovation and Outdoor Research. This recording of the Joy Trip Reading Project was created in partnership with the University of Wisconsin-Madison Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. Here we acknowledge the ancestral homeland of the Ho-Chunk people on the sacred land known for time and memorial as Dejo. Wherever you are in North America, please recognize the native people of the place you now call home. Thanks for listening, but as always, I want to hear from you. So please, drop me a note in the comments below with your questions, comments, and criticisms, or write to me via email at info at You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. If you like this episode, please write me a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite podcast. For now, go be joyful, and until next time, take care.